0: Father, we thank you for this time. We invite you to speak to us this morning. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might see as you intend for us to see. For those who don't know you, draw them by the power of your Spirit. And may your name be praised. In the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray these things. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in the Gospel of Acts chapter 1. For the next few weeks we're going to be in the, in the, not the Gospel of Acts, but the book of Acts uh, for the next few weeks. And uh, as we look at the uh, the purpose of the book of Acts, which is uh, the power of the Holy Spirit in giving an account uh, of the transformation of the church and of those who followed Christ. And as we, we look at this and as we inspect this text, uh, I think there's a, just a lot of Wonderful lessons that we can glean uh, from this early church, from this blueprint of how Christianity begun and how the spread of Christianity and, and the church impacted the known world of that time. Now, as I think about that, I also remember, uh, if you can go back with me in history, the late, it's the late 1700s and early 1800s in Europe. And uh, many of the countries in Europe at this point, uh, there's kind of a brewing of tension that's going on. Particularly, one, one country for sure would be France. And in France, uh, you've got uh, the nobility, the royalty that are really pretty much dominating all the wealth and society of that time. There's a very small percentage of them, but they are not taxed. Uh, but yet the people are being taxed at 60 and 70 percent. And so there's a lot of animosities growing, and then you throw in a famine, and uh, what we have is the French Revolution that occurs. And so many of you are familiar with that. Uh, What's also sometimes forgotten or unknown that uh, also in Great Britain, the conditions weren't that different. Uh, There was, matter of fact, in some instances, even higher tax rates occurring in Great Britain than there were in France. But there's also... A, uh, just, just a very unique event that occurs during that time. While the French are having their revolution, there's also something stirring in Great Britain, and it's called the Great Awakening. Through George Whitfield, through John and Charles Wesley, through Charles Finney, through many great men, as they began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see scores and scores of people coming to Christ, Some historians will say anywhere from one in five to one in four people make a commitment to Jesus Christ, experience revival within their lives, and so it has a profound impact on that culture at that time. We see the literacy rate starts to go up. It's uh, the 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 heart or the beginning of the industrial revolution, and we see child labor laws coming to effect. We see orphanages begin to open up. We see the the abolishment of slavery. Just a lot of neat things occurred during this Great Awakening time. And uh, historians are are, are fascinated by it. And of course, you know, it even spills over across the Atlantic into the colonies here in the United States as as well. And it's known as the Great Awakening. But you know, the first real Great Awakening occurred here in the book of Acts uh, shortly after Jesus Uh, Dies and we see we'll see in the text where he comes back for forty days and here in the book of Acts and how he instructs and uh, and trains the disciples and inspires the disciples and tells them that the power of the Holy Spirit is about to come upon them and it's very interesting when you think about it there was this small group of ragtag men who were not in a dominant position of power by any means matter of fact they were under uh, the instruction of the Roman government, under the power of the Roman government. And not just that, they were also uh, not even in their own nation that was under the oppression of the Roman government. They weren't in leadership there. So you've got this small group of ragtag men and also some women who follow as well. And somehow that bubbles up, and somehow we see it going from 12 to 70, to 120, to 500, 3,000 here on Pentecost. And we see this explosion to where 300 years from then, we will see it as the principal religion of the known world. Some historians will say nearly 50% of those under the Roman Empire, and Constantine himself will take on that moniker of Christian. And how does it go from this little group of men, from this... Messiah who is killed upon a cross, which by the way, we don't have time to get into the apologetics of that, but you realize there were multiple men who came claiming to be the Messiah before and after Christ. But here's what would happen. They would raise a little army. They'd raise a little group. They'd start a little revolution or an attack and it would get squashed. They'd get killed and the leader would get killed and that'd be end of it. Every time when the leader dies, that was the end. Okay. He wasn't the Messiah. And uh, their, their group just disperses and they all go away. Okay? That's the end of it. Story's over. Uh, no, there's no scene two coming. That's what happens every time. Except with Christ. Here's Jesus Christ who willingly goes to the cross. But then on the third day he rises and we see that he inspires the disciples in such a way. And something powerfully happens to them in such a way that that's when the movement really takes off. It wasn't while he was here. It was after his death. What would happen that in this one particular instance would so change the known world and civilization as we know it today after the death of Christ, after the death of the Messiah? And that's what the book of Acts teaches us. That's what we learn as we, and that's what we can glean here from the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, look with me at the book of Acts beginning with chapter 1. Now we know that Luke wrote the book of Acts. He's a Gentile physician. He's a doctor. And uh, what's really interesting, just a little bit of trivia here, is that Luke wrote more of the New Testament in volume than anyone else. You would say, what about all those letters the apostle Paul wrote? Well, you're right. He wrote a lot more letters. Luke only wrote two. He wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. But in sheer volume, this There's more information and there's more given to us right here through Luke, who's a Gentile, who's not one of the disciples, but he spends time with the Apostle Paul. We know he spends a lot of time with him. He spends some time with Peter. He gathers all the facts and all the information, and he writes the most extensive gospel that we have. Isn't it amazing that God allowed a Gentile to write... The much of the New Testament, the greatest volume of work of the New Testament. So we see in the first book, speaking of the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus. Now, who's Theophilus? Well, the truth of it is we really don't know. Okay, but here's what we here's here are two theories on who Theophilus might have been. One is some believe he will eventually become the high priest uh, over the Jewish nation. So he will eventually take his place in that he is a relative. Of Caiaphas. So some think that. And if that was the case, then certainly he would have a big impact and a a lot of influence over the Jewish nation. But most believe that he was probably a Roman prefect. Uh, As a matter of fact, by the very title that he's given, that's the way they typically would address uh, Roman high ranking officials. And so if he's a prefect, then he has a lot of power. And he has a lot of influence. And so, um, so here's Theopolis. I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And until that day when he was taken up and he was given the command, speaking of the Great Commission, uh, talking about the, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 29, through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Now, let's stop right there, that he presented himself alive. Now, we don't fully appreciate this, and it's very difficult in our culture to understand this, but if you were a Jew, the one thing that you were certain of was that God was not a man, and that he would never be a man, could never be a man, okay? That's the one thing that you would say about your religion. If there wasn't any other difference, although there were many, there was a huge difference in the way that the Jews viewed their God, Yahweh, the God of the universe, holy, untainted by mankind. And now here is Jesus who claims to be God in the flesh, God's pure and literal Son, and we're Trinitarian here at our church. We believe God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when we say the Holy Spirit, we're talking about God. When we say Jesus, we're talking about God. When we say the Father, we're talking about God. So here is Jesus, God in the flesh, claiming to be God in the flesh, making this claim to Jewish people. That's pretty amazing when you stop and think about it. And for them to believe this is beyond comprehension. But they do. They believe it so strongly that they give their very lives for it. They change the day of the Sabbath. The second great principle for a Jew would have been that the Sabbath is the day of worship. And that happened on Saturday. And they changed the day to Sunday. And these are all Jews making this conversion. It's a complete paradigm shift for them. So now here's Jesus appearing before them after he's died. And we know, according to Paul, that over 500 people see him the many proofs appearing before them over the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We know Pentecost is coming, and as he speaks here, we're talking specifically uh, about the power of the Spirit that's going to come upon the disciples. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said, look, the power's coming. there. I want you to stay right here in Jerusalem, and I want you to worship here, and I want you to prepare here and know that the Spirit of God is coming upon you. And we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit next week in, in depth. But it, it's very interesting here because... They hear this, and they're still thinking, okay, so we're going to have a revolution, right? And we're going to get rid of the Roman oppressors, and we're going to be rightly put back into our place. We're going to get our country back. We're going to get our temple back. We're going to get everything the way that we we had it before. And don't you know Jesus is just thinking... You know, this is like my teenager who I'm talking to him about the importance of life, about this big investment I'm making for them for college and to be prepared and how it's important to make good decisions. And let me tell you about the most important decisions of your educational life. And you're explaining that to him. They go, okay, can I have some money to go to the movie? I mean, Jesus must be feeling just like that at this moment because they still don't get it. He's risen from the dead. He's come back. He's proclaimed the truth and the power of the gospel. He's promising them the power of the Holy Spirit. So is this when we get our... This is when the kingdom comes. This is when we get our place back. This is when we get rid of the Romans. That's what they're still saying. They still haven't totally gotten it. So what changes them. Well, let's continue. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will have the power come upon you. Matter of fact, in the book of Acts, we see the word Holy Spirit appearing 42 times. It only occurs about 96 times in the whole of Scripture, but 42 of those times, it's occurring right here in the book of Acts. So what do we learn from this text? What do we learn from this passage? Well, we learn a couple of things. First of all, the essence of Christianity, the essence of Christianity. Now, what do we mean by the essence of Christianity? Let me establish to you like this. Today in our culture, It's really okay for you to say something of this nature. Most people would not be offended if you say something of this. You know, I'm a Christian, and I'm a Christian because that's what works for me. It it works for me, and that's what's good for me. And we take a very, what we would call, subjective approach. But if I turn that, and I make that an objective approach, and I say, you know what, I believe Christianity would be the way. I believe that when Jesus made those claims, they were pretty exclusive. When he said, I am the way, the truth, and life, no man comes to the Father but through me, and that Jesus is the only way to God. Whew. That's what we would call an objective statement, an objective truth. matter of fact, Jesus makes it objective in the sense. Now, you might interpret it as subjective, but Jesus makes pretty objective statements. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and life, no man comes to the Father but through me. We have to determine whether that's subjective or objective. Some people would say, well, I'm going to try Christianity, and I'll see if this works or not. I'll just kind of try it and see if it works. Let me tell you, that's not why you come to Christ, to see if it kind of works for you. It's not like a new car or philosophy or relationship. Let's just try this and see if this works. You come to Christ because it's true. That's why we come to him. We recognize his truth to be objective truth, not subjective truth. I don't think if the apostles would have approached it that way, it would have worked. If we believe tradition that 11 out of 12 died a martyr's death, in that moment, it wasn't really working for them. You know what I mean? And you're getting tortured. You're not really saying, you know, this works for me. No, it's not working at all. The only way you would give your life if you believe imperative that this is the truth. It's not... A truth, it's not just a philosophy I adopted, it is the truth. And that's the power of the gospel. We will never know the power of the gospel and the power of the Spirit till we come to the place where we see the gospel as the objective truth of God. Now, what is the truth? What is the gospel? And that sounds like a kind of silly question to ask for Christianity for Christians today, isn't it? But I think it's, I think it's something that we need to understand. So let's just kind of walk through the principles of the gospel. Number one, that Jesus Christ is a Savior and that He's God. We stated earlier that He's not not simply a messenger of God. He wasn't even simply the Son of God. He is God. He was God in the flesh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We have to believe that that is objective truth, to know the power of the gospel. Number two, that He lived a sinless life and He willingly died for our sins. That he lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death we should have died. That he was God in the flesh. He lived a perfect and sinless life. And because scripture said there must be a sacrifice for sin because God said I am holy and there must be a penalty for sins he willingly bore, that's penalty. He was killed and buried on the third day and he rose from the dead. He is alive today and that he is the truth and that he offers salvation by grace through our faith to mankind. That is the gospel. That is the objective gospel. When you start putting it like that, some people get a little queasy. "Eh, I don't know about that. Again, I believe one of the reasons we don't know the power of the Holy Spirit in our church today like we could is because we take a subjective approach instead of standing firmly upon the gospel. The Bible says the gospel is not A truth, the gospel says it's not a power. It's a way to get to the power. It's a type of power. Paul says in Romans chapter one verse seventeen that it is the power unto salvation. It is the power in itself. So when we understand that, that is what we are to share. That's the story we share. We talk about a witness. What is that? It's just sharing your story. Sharing. I mean, and we do it all kind. By the way. We share, we witness all the time. Hey, man, have you been to that restaurant? It's great. you got to go try it. That, that movie, Did you see that movie? That was an excellent movie. It's just a sharing of our story. It's not that you have to go through four spiritual laws. It's giving account of what's happened to you, of what you value, of what you're excited about. It's giving of our time, of our resources. It's our mission to love God with all that we are while making more and better followers of Christ. Now, let's look at this last verse one more time, because this verse sometimes is subject to what uh, we learned in seminary is called an exegetical fallacy. In other words, uh, people incorrectly interpret it sometimes. But you will receive power, and the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. Some people want to interpret it like this, and it does not say this, that, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in in Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. I've had people say to me, well, you know, we just need to take care of our Jerusalem right here. Now, first of all, it's a little bit problematic because 10 of these disciples, 10 of 11, remember there's only 11 left because Judas is no longer with us at this point, they're not from Jerusalem, they're from Galilee. It's not their hometown. So he's not saying, start in your hometown. Just stay right there in your hometown. Let's sit in their hometown. It's where they've come to worship. Now, if you want to, you could say, start where you worship. That would be a more accurate description. Start where you worship. It's where God chose uh, to empower them through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, It's a holy city, and we could go into that. But if you're going to draw a clear analogy, and I'm not sure that we even need to or necessarily should, you can't say it's our hometown. The best you could do is to say it's where we worship because it's where they had gone to worship. So, you start, so in Jerusalem where we worship and we we share the good news in Judea, in our community, in Samaria, across the cultural barriers into the end of the earth, it was never a then. Go here, then when you get this one all finished, then go there. Guess what? We never get it all finished. And that's not what he said. He's saying as you go to everyone, give everyone as the doors are open, walk through them. That's what he's describing, that's what's being given to us here. So let's talk about that for just a moment. I want to give you some pictures of some folks who are, who are living in their Jerusalem, who are ministering in their Jerusalem and outside of the Jerusalem. The first one is in our preschool ministry. This is Amy Koch, and Amy serves in our preschool ministry. matter of fact, she'll do it a couple times a week and uh, volunteers after being a teacher all week and does a terrific job. She's also very involved in ministries in Africa, and uh, has been over there multiple times, and just makes uh, has a real heart for Africa as well. Uh, another person in our at church here, Paula DeBoss, she is a, a young single lady who has gone through some very difficult circumstances, and uh, but is giving her life uh, to to children right now, and shares and teaches. As a matter of fact, she's back teaching right now our children, and uh, has... Come under that conviction that God wants her to establish ministry here. And even in spite of her circumstances, God's going to redeem those. And that's what she's doing right now in our children's ministry. And is a great opportunity for you as well. Um, Another individual, uh, or another family, as we talk about our Judea, is the McDaniel family. And uh, they're working with uh, one of our Alzheimer's homes here as well as our retirement homes. And uh, they do ministry uh, every month. And they take their whole family. and matter of fact, you can participate as well here at our church. You can participate in that ministry as well if you would like to. And just contact us. We'd be happy to set you up. But they serve here on Sunday mornings, and they serve in the community as well. Uh, another Linda Morrison, another lady who works faithfully in our children's ministry and has put a lot of time and effort to a lot of our ministries here. But God has burdened her. Uh, about the issue of human trafficking. So a couple years ago, we got involved in uh, sponsoring or supporting human trafficking right here uh, in this community, in this area, in the greater Metroplex area. Uh, Children and teenagers who are being trafficked. And it's a ministry that she's poured her heart into. She's serving in in Jerusalem and in Judea. Uh, Tricia Lyons and her family, Scott and Tricia Lyons. Uh, Many of you are familiar with Operation uh, Our Men of Nehemiah. And uh, the first time they came, uh, she was thinking about her brother-in-law who was, uh, had, had a real problem with alcohol and was sick and was just uh, just in a very difficult situation kind of thinking, what, what, if anything, should I do? And she was inspired as she heard uh, these men come and give their testimony. And unfortunately, her brother-in-law died that night. But God kind of placed on her heart, you know what, to never give up on anybody and to do what she could. And so her family have gotten involved, she, uh, she and uh, her whole family have gotten involved in, uh, in making a difference through uh, the men of Nehemiah, as well as they serve here on Sunday mornings. Tammy Schultz, another person who serves faithfully here every Sunday morning, and her family serves here, uh, is working with Cornerstone. And she's involved with the soup kitchen and the clothing closet down at Cornerstone and making an impact there. She said, you know, I felt God told me it was time to quit just studying the Bible and start doing the Bible as well as studying it. And so God has made a huge impact through her, and she serves here as well. Uh, we've talked about uh, what's going on in Haiti, many of our men that are making impact. I started off by showing you uh, the little thing that we've been given there, and you see the, the, uh, the school that's been built there. And many of our men that just got back this weekend from serving in Haiti and the impact and the difference that they're making there. Uh, Another uh, to consider and another great story uh, is, um, let's go to the next picture here. My memory's not working well. I think the Murphy, the Murphy family here. And Chris and Brent Murphy, great story here. Uh, We had a trip to the Dominican Republic where we're sponsoring pretty much an entire village of children there. And uh, I told Brent about it, and so he and his son were thinking about going to it. But then uh, they, he had been in a lottery for master's tickets uh, for 11 years and never won. And when you know, this is the year he wins. Okay, so he's got master's tickets, and uh, he starts thinking about it, and he starts thinking, you know, I don't, I don't know that we should go. I, don't, I think maybe we ought to go to the Dominican Republic. But he didn't tell his son that. And he knew his son really, really wanted to go. And so he sat down and talked to his son, and his son said, you know what, Dad, I've been thinking and praying about it, and I think we ought to give our tickets up. And go to the Dominican Republic, just neat deal twelve year old boy and so they went and it had a profound impact on them, and then they 'd gone to Belize and Chris, who was doing who helped start our mommies in connection, is now teaching a Bible study here it had an impact on their family there and now their kids are are getting involved here in ministry. Brent started a ministry called Man Up. Every Wednesday night, some of you, some of your boys are probably a part of that. Ninth grade boys get together, they learn a man skill, and they're learning biblical principles. Uh, and uh, just there are about 30 boys that are doing that every Wednesday night. And that's something that Brent has started. God has placed upon his heart. And, uh, as well as the ministry that they are doing in Belize the Kersey's families. Uh, matter of fact, Brian, you, some of you were just ushered in by Brian and his wife. Uh, some of you probably uh, were checked, your children were checked in by Shanti. And this is their son, Alex. Alex has a rare disease. It's a mutation of his genes. There's only five people in the world that they know that have this. And uh, unfortunately, he and his brother have this, but it makes his bones grow too fast, and uh, particularly in his knees. And so, uh, it 's just bone against bone, and so he lives in constant pain every day. And I remember when Alex first came, when they first came, he would be in the back here on Wednesday nights, and, and uh, he' have a hard time because he was shy just participating, but his parents kept pushing him and got him involved, and uh, God just began to speak to him, and through some of the, our, our student ministers and volunteers, uh, they really began to pour into the life of Brian. And then this last year, when some of us went on a trip to, uh, again to Belize. Uh, Brian decided that that he should go, and he was already doing a student trip, but he decided to go. Now, what's significant about that? It was during his graduation, so he missed his graduation party, his graduation. That's actually him in a cap and gown in Belize. This is a family who is involved here, involved there. Matter of fact, Shanti is headed to Africa this summer. And if you go back and you look at Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. We've got to get this mindset out that, you know what, I'm just do i just going to do this one thing, and if it's not available right now, I'm not going to do anything. What are the doors that God's opening for you? Here's one, the Clark family. You've heard me talk about them multiple times before, but this is the Clark children. Kyle, who is a, an active member here in our church, Kyle and Lee, and this is their three children. Of course, Kyle died several years ago, and um, Lee and the kids went over to Africa. And while they were there, <coughs> uh, they began to work with orphans, and uh, McKinley, at the time, she was just finishing up her junior year in high school. Uh, she got convicted that God felt God was really leading her to build an orphanage over there. They needed buildings. They couldn't house any more kids. And so she got convicted that that's what she needed to do. So she took on the task of raising money, which ultimately was $100,000. And over the last two years, that's what she's been doing. Uh, this is a little girl. This, is, this was a 17-year-old girl who felt like that's what God was leading her to do. And so she began to do that. They began to sell T-shirts. A matter of fact, you, you may have passed a T-shirt. They were selling those T-shirts when you came in here because now they're trying to furnish it. And uh, she, she, they've been selling T-shirts, running races, raising money. And now they will see that built uh, this summer. And a matter of fact, Shanti and a couple others are going to be going over to see that. But that was all started by a teenager. You got heard that call and God led her and placed that upon her heart. Uh, Paul and Melinda Marshall uh, in our church here. And uh, they uh, both had gone through a divorce. They both were single parents. And uh, they got married, and God kind of put it upon their heart to to uh, work with divorce recovery and single parents. So they started that ministry here. And matter of fact, that information will be out at the tables after this service. We encourage you to go out there and, and look at it. And they're doing a marvelous job. God has really used them to spearhead and, and to make that ministry possible here at Rock Point. Paul also has gone to Haiti with us. As a matter of fact, he just got back from Haiti. And kind of a neat story, Paul and I were in Haiti together in November, and we stayed at a place called Heartland Mission, where we would operate out of. And uh, they, were, they were kids, they're college kids that come and uh, give up their time, give up three months, six months, and they kind of intern there. And it's, and it's, I won't go into all it. it's a hard place. It's a hard place to be. Well, Paul uh, began to talk to his son, and uh, his son ended up not going to college this semester, and Paul told him about Heartland Missions, and his son's over there serving in Haiti. So it's another great example of God using the family unit and God using redeeming the past and redeeming your experiences when you're willing to walk through those doors. What about you? What is God leading you to be a part of? Maybe you just need to start with a trek. Maybe that's the place you need to start, the discipleship. Maybe you need to start there, but I'd tell you you could start there And still be involved in another way. And God may have something else for you. Let me do say this. If God calls you, you don't don't let the fear stop you. Don't think, you know what, I'll go get the church to do that. I'll be honest with you, we're doing a whole lot right now. And there's a good chance we won't. Most of these people, they started. And we're, we're helping a lot of them now. But we didn't help them starting out. Because there are just so many opportunities. there's so many things that we're investing in. Can I tell you this? When God calls you and he places it upon your heart, it's not for somebody else to do. It's for, you, it's for you to take the step of faith. Now, a lot of times, that's just take a step of faith to walk into the children's ministry or the student ministry or whatever it is, the discipleship ministry. Maybe that's the first step you need to take. But don't think of it in a manner of, you know, God, whatever you're going to come in, I'll get some other people to do it. When I feel confident that everybody else will do it and everybody else will take care of it, then I'll step out. That's not the picture here in the book of Acts. When we take the gospel to be objectively true and we say, God, I'm going to operate in the power of the gospel. I believe it to be so true that it can transform the lives of men and women and that the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon me and enable me to go forth that which you've called me to do. Then... That's when we see the power and the transformation. What is God calling you to be a part of today? What is the step he's calling you to take today? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you give so many opportunities for us to get involved. Lord, I thank you that over in our new church atrium right now, there are ample opportunities for us to be involved with. I pray that people today will take the step... Toward you today. Lord, it's easy to say I've got a lot going on. I've got a lot of things to be involved with, but the truth of it is we just have to make decisions on what's most important to us in our lives, what our life is going to be about and the impact that we're going to ultimately make. I pray, Lord, that you would convict us, that you would lead us, and you would show us. And Lord, if there's one here that doesn't know you today, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your Spirit to come and experience the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our lives. We thank you for this opportunity, and we look forward to what you're going to do in the days ahead. In the name of Jesus, we pray.